Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and with me as always is Aaron Miller, my co-host. Uh, today we've got a few different topics for you. Our first big topic is going to be Apple Music and there's been quite a discussion lately about Apple Music among the Apple community, uh, kicked off by Jim Dalrymple at the Loop uh, website um, and then picked up by others including Marco Armand, a prominent developer. Uh, we're also then going to do our question of the week, which will focus on Windows 10. Uh, and we know we have something of an Apple-centric audience, but we're going to do a little departure here and talk about Windows 10, uh, partly because we feel a lot of our audience would be interested in it as, as largely Mac users, um, but also because it's a big news topic this week with the launch of Windows 10. Uh, we're then going to talk about a rumor that just popped up today on the day we're recording about uh, an Apple TV device, a uh, new one with an SDK and an App Store launching uh, alongside new iPhones in September and then we'll wrap up with our weekly pick and it's Aaron's turn to uh, handle those duties this week. So we'll kick off with our discussion of Apple Music and as I mentioned what really kicked this off and we'll link to all these posts in the show notes at, at podcast.beyonddevices uh, but what really kicked it off was a piece by Jim Dalrymple who's one of the uh, most respected and best sourced I think is a good way to describe him Apple bloggers out there experienced guy um, who re often refutes uh, rumors with a simple one word, yep or nope, uh, on his uh, blog, The Loop. Uh, but he wrote a post, uh, I think a couple of weeks ago now, about Apple Music and how he's basically giving up on it because he was so frustrated with it. Um, and uh, his criticisms were in large part about performance and about the tricky uh, interaction between uh, Apple Music and iTunes Match, which he also used, and the feeling that he'd lost a lot of music in the transition to Apple Music. Um, and we'll come on to talk about this, but it's kind of kicked off a whole range of other criticisms and uh, opinions about Apple Music. And uh, so that's what we want to start out by talking about. Aaron, what was kind of your reaction to all of this, first of all? Well, uh, when this showed up in my feed reader, because I, you know, I have um, uh, his uh, One Infinite Loop in my feed, in my feeds that I check every day and I saw the headline Apple Music is a Nightmare and I'm done with it I was to be honest I was totally shocked that it came from Jim Dalrymple and, and I mean it's mostly just because he's he's totally an Apple insider he's the one who's always killing or confirming rumors with the with the very mysterious nope or yep you know he, he obviously knows a lot of people at Apple and has really great connections there so I don't think he would post an article like this lightly clearly you know losing a lot of his music and he's it, for the listeners who aren't familiar with him jim is very musically oriented he's he's a huge fan of of uh various you know of all kinds of heavy metal groups and and uh plays the guitar is is pretty passionate about his music i i think messing with his music library was probably the the most powerful way that apple could have ever touched a nerve with him <laughs> So that was my first reaction as I saw the headline and, and then I saw the byline that it came from Jim Dalrymple and I was kind of blown away. Yeah, it's about the only other thing that Apple could have done that might have been worse is taking his Heineken away. I think that's uh, or, another or, big love. Or suggesting he shave his beard. So it would have been oh, any maybe, of those yeah. three, I guess, right? but that's about it. Yeah, absolutely. No, no, it was particularly surprising coming from from that quarter. Um, yeah, the other thing is, you know, that, that Jim Dalrymple's had an interesting kind of history with Apple recently. He was at the uh, launch event for the Apple Watch and somehow got shut out of the demo area 
and then he had an issue with iTunes around, I think, the Loop magazine, which turned out to be a problem at his end and not at Apple's end. But he's shown himself to be willing to come out and criticize Apple when he feels like they deserve it. And he's not a shrinking violet. But this, even for him, was a bit of a departure. Um, and, and, you know, he's kind of done a follow-up piece in which, you know, he'd, he'd met with Apple um, and they had kind of clarified a few things and it turned out he'd misunderstood some stuff and you could argue quote-unquote some of it was his fault in that he'd kind of either not checked or unchecked things or not understood things properly but you know even his explanation of it um, was was somewhat complex and it, it kind of goes to the root of the fact that trying to understand Apple Music and how it works on its own is one thing but trying to understand its interaction with something like iTunes Match which is another cloud service uh, makes things even more complicated. I'm actually using both. I haven't had any issues. Um, they seem to be interacting just fine on my phone. I have had the odd bug here and there, but I'm never quite sure how much of that is down to um, using beta, developer beta versions of iOS 9 on my phone and how much is just the way the services work and, and there's some bugs in those still at this point. But um, one thing that, that Jim Dalrymple's post did, though, was kind of open the floodgates to a whole range of other critiques and, and it's not like there haven't been any right from the beginning certain people have complained that the the app was kind of overloaded but Marco Arment who's also you know long-term sort of Apple fan for the most part is also somebody who's shown himself recently to be more than willing to criticize Apple when he doesn't like something it's doing he also wrote a piece mostly about the kind of design and UI elements around Apple Music and that's then been picked up in sort of mainstream media the Atlantic did a piece that, that Aaron forwarded to me um, about that um, and so that's kind of widened the discussion. I mean, I guess the ultimate question here is, you know, do we feel like this stuff is merited? Is this an overreaction or is this, you know, legitimate stuff that Apple really needs to take seriously and do something about? You know, I think when it comes to iTunes, it's, it's not just merited. I, I genuinely think it's overdue. I, I, iTunes is such a strange software application compared to the other stuff that Apple produces. Um, in fact, I can't help but wonder if with, I, with the iTunes interface, if they violate some of their own... Uh, you know, hu human interface design guidelines that they give to developers. Uh, it, the thing, that, one of the things that I don't love, and f it's funny because my wife actually complained about this um, the second she got the update where all the icons became really small across the top row. She just had a hard time figuring out what anything meant or, or did. Um, you know, when Apple ditched the left-hand navigation menu uh, to basically cram everything up into the title bar, that was sort of the tipping point for me of, of iTunes just sort of being, I, I can't say beyond hope, although uh, there, uh, 9 to 5 Mac did post an article that said that, uh, let's see, who was it that wrote it? It was Ben Lovejoy, and his opinion was that, uh, that the best approach with iTunes now is to nuke it from orbit. <laughs> yes, <laughs> so. I saw that today, yeah. You know, I, I mean, it's funny hearing all these different metaphors that people have been pulling out, like Marco called iTunes a toxic hell stew. Right. Borrowing a term originally used about Android. Right. I, you know, the uh, the truth is iTunes really is a mess. And I'm not sure that with all they're asking iTunes to accomplish, they have a way to not make it messy, um, largely just because they're cramming so much in. Um you know, we actually talked about this before in a previous podcast, and I wrote about it when I did that post on user interface friction. Um, yeah. But, you know, there's a certain amount of expertise that helps users overcome friction. You know, you, they sort of learn to use the app well, and then 
and, and then their friction in using the app goes down because they waste less effort doing the things they need to do. I, I think it's unreasonable to expect users to develop expertise in something like iTunes because yeah, it's not absolutely. intended for an expert audience. It's intended for everybody. Right. In right. fact, more people use iTunes than any other single piece of Apple software. And for it to be the most poorly designed of their major applications right now, um, considering how many people use it, uh, is obviously inviting a lot of this criticism. Yeah, I mean, I feel like with iTunes, the obvious solution is to break it up into its constituent parts, much as Apple has done over the last couple of years on iOS. So you create a videos app and pull out everything related to videos. You you know, separate that from the music, that would be a good starting point. You know, perhaps there's a different app altogether for syncing devices if you still need to do that, because that's another complexity in iTunes is it's also the way you sync iPhones and iPads and so on. Um, so that, that seems like part of the answer. I've also seen criticisms, though, of, of the way the music app works on iOS and people saying they feel that has too much in it. And I'm just not sure what the solution is there because I feel like, to me at least as a user, one of the huge things, you know, theoretically ahead of time and in practice now that it's launched, one of the biggest things about Apple Music was the way it combines my owned music with the music that I'm streaming and adding from Apple Music and the fact that I easily add things to my library and then play the things that I own and the things that I'm sort of borrowing in effect um, very easily, seamlessly, side by side as part of playlists and so on. So, you know, I feel like breaking that up would really kind of destroy a lot of the value for me. But I have seen some people talking about even that as well. Do you feel like the problem is is bad on iOS as it is on on uh, iTunes as a desktop application? I, I don't think it's been around long enough to be as bad. I think iTunes has gotten the way it is over the years. Um, it doesn't, the, the music app on the iPhone doesn't have the same, uh, you know, historical burden that iTunes on the Mac or Windows computers has to bear. I, you know, Rene Ritchie wrote about this too over at iMore. And uh, he, he pointed out that, it, that Apple really wants to have one thought about music, right? That was sort of a phrase that they used in their keynote and the way they sort of talked about the intent. And I can't see how they can make Apple Music be competitively differentiated without the idea of combining libraries. I, I think, you know, we've talked about that early on, that that was one of the things both of us found appealing about Apple Music was right. the idea of combining the streaming catalog with the library that I already own. Um, the, the idea of mixing an iTunes match is where I think things get really confusing. And the truth is, I'm not sure how well thought out the music app is, but I think it will get better. I, I mean, one of the things Renee Ritchie pointed out, for example, is that you have a tab at the bottom for my music, and then you have another tab called For You, right? and it changes the voice. <laughs> right? I mean, the, like the app... Yeah. Like Inconsistent just, pronouns. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, it should be... Like, they should be addressing you you know in the second person or or changing it to first person where you know i'm the person speaking as the user of the app right and they're not they haven't been consistent with that for example and and so um you know i think a lot of that stuff is going to get worked out on the ios side it's the itunes side that i think needs a, a major overhaul and apple hasn't hesitated to do that before with other applications i mean they did it with imovie way back in imovie 08 that's what launched my whole foray into that um, you know, into that space with with uh, the blog I used to do and the and, and the books and everything, they did it again with the iWork suite um, relatively recently, and yep. in fact, a whole bunch of features kind of went out the door back then, and they've been slowly adding them back in, and that was all in the name of unifying more with the iOS versions of all the iWork apps. 
Right, right. And they've done it in other places too. I mean, Final Cut Pro, right. they kind of nu nuked that and started again, kind of hacked off a bunch of users in the process. But, you know, they've slowly added functionality back there too. And, of course, the most recent example is Photos. Right. So replacing iPhoto with Photos on, on OS X as well. You know, that was a comparison that Marco Arment made was right. the idea that iCloud Photo Library is an example of Apple doing the whole streaming service really well. Um, I have not had the same happy uh, outcomes <laughs> that he's had. Um, my problems are mostly on the iOS side. On my iPhone, for whatever reason, I've got a lot of gray boxes where photos should be showing up. Um, right. And I can get them to very slowly load if I zoom all the way in and then slowly scroll through them. But uh, it's obviously a pain that's not quite worth the time because we've got a lot of photos. We have a pretty big library, uh, photo library right. that we've uploaded. It's got let's see, probably 14 years worth of photos. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I really do hope on the Mac side that Apple decides to break apart iTunes. I don't think it makes sense for movies and music to be in the same app anymore. Yeah. Um, what do you think about the syncing capability? Do you think it makes sense to have just kind of a sync app that people who need that kind of thing will use that? I do, and they used to do that. They're, I mean, way, way back they had something called iSync. And hmm. um, this was a long time ago, uh, you know, and it was really kind of predated iPhones. And it was back when you had a smartphone that could sync with iTunes or with the right. calendar or mail or whatever on your on your Mac. And the truth is, I really liked iSync. It had a little toolbar menu that you could use to activate it. It worked really well. And then they sucked everything into iTunes because of the iPod. Um, I think an iSync app would actually be really handy and useful for a lot of reasons. One, it would be very lightweight. Uh, two, it would be easy to use. And and also, I don't always want my phone to sync when I connect it to my computer. And, you know, unless you change that setting to about automatic syncing, and, and then you have to go into iTunes, and then it gets confusing because you see, like, an iTunes library along with your iPhone's music library. And I think they can sim simplify a lot of things by having a, se a separate syncing app. And the truth is a lot of people aren't. They're syncing less and less. Right, yeah, and that's why I mentioned it, if you even need it, because a lot of people don't even need the syncing functionality anymore because it's just using iCloud. Yeah, I think people with large music libraries will probably still want to sync their iOS devices. Right. I prefer backing up to my Mac versus the iCloud backup, and so that's yeah, another reason here. to sync. So I, I, mm -hmm. But I think a separate syncing app, and they could just resurrect iSync and have it you know, right. be the new software for that. Right, right. Yeah, that seems the obvious solution. Yeah. Um, any other thoughts on all of this? I mean, what else does Apple need to do to kind of fix things? I mean, do they do they need to kind of just abandon iTunes Match? Is that part of the problem here? Is that you have these? I mean, the thing is, you have to still pay for them separately too. That's the other funny thing about it is, you know, an Apple Music subscription that costs ten dollars a month doesn't get you iTunes Match, which costs I can't remember what it is twenty dollars a month or twenty dollars a year or something like that. Yeah, I, I, um, I can only. Th it's I, kind of funny. I can only think the reason that they that they kept those separate is because they are suspecting there will be a lot of people that don't want to use Apple Music but they mm -hmm. do want to do, use iTunes Match. Otherwise, I don't right. see a point in having them be separate products. Whether or not there's really demand for that, for a separate iTunes Match service over time, who knows? Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure there will always be some demand, but whether or not it's enough for Apple to keep from just giving it the ax, I don't know. Um, you know, yeah. I, the, I think the, the interesting thing is going to be wondering how long it takes Apple to fix iTunes. Um, right. Usually that's a part of, you know, when they make big iTunes changes, it's been in the past part of, a, of an iOS, or sorry, of an OS upgrade. 
Mm. And uh, I wonder if they're going to wait as long as a year to fix it, because I guarantee you, based on all the negative press they've been getting about iTunes now, they have a team in accelerated mode dealing with the right. problem. Right, yeah, no doubt, yeah. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if that might come sooner. I mean, it feels like the timing's awkward because you don't want to wait a whole year, which effectively you'd have to wait, you know, as an end user because El Capitan hasn't even launched yet. We know right. it's not there. And yet, you know, you've got usually September, October events for iPhones and iPads and then nothing until maybe an Apple Watch event in the spring or something like that. Right. So the timing becomes a bit awkward. It doesn't merit its own event or anything. Right. But it's probably significant enough that you don't want to just put out a press release. And they used to update iTunes separately from the from the OS too. I mean, mm. there, years ago when they were doing the whole digital hub strategy, um, and they they had the iLife suite. iTunes started off as part of the iLife suite, and right. then eventually it was just baked into OS ten, and got mm. updates along with OS ten. And and so I wonder right. if they might. I don't know. I mean, really, their best opportunity is the iPhone event in September. And whether or not they'd have something ready for that, who knows? I mean, they did push out, they did announce photos, right, well before it was ready for the Mac. Mm-hmm. And maybe yeah. they'll just to kind of placate users, maybe... Say it's coming. Hold yeah, on. say it's coming. Like they'll show kind of, right. this is what we're working on. You'll see more, mm-hmm. say, in January, February. And that way they're taking advantage of the event but still buying themselves time. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. Well, I think we've covered that topic. Um, let's move on to our question of the week. I, I've got the question of the week duties this time around, and our, our topic this week is Windows 10. Um, and you know, much of what we talk about on this podcast so far has been Apple-related, and, and we hope to change that in time. Um, but we also imagine that our audience is fairly Apple and Mac-centric as opposed to Windows-centric. So we thought we'd do something a little bit different and talk about Windows 10 this time around. Yeah, so the the question really that I think, and, and this isn't a question only Mac users are going to be asking right now, is what in the world is Windows 10? What is Microsoft doing with this Windows 10 thing? Because when you read the headlines, it's very clear that Microsoft is doing things differently, dramatically differently from how they've done in the past. So, um, yeah, and I, I guess we'll start off with the really big question, what is Windows 10? Yeah, it's kind of, uh, I mean, one of the obvious questions is, you know, what happened to Windows 9? Because, you know, (laughs) the last version of Windows was Windows 8. I actually read a really good joke about that where there's a somewhere in Microsoft, there's a Windows 9 team that's sure there's just been a big mistake. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. Um, Yeah, so they had 8 and then 8.1 and they've jumped straight to 10. And it it kind of also reminds me a bit of the Spinal Tap movie where the the amps go to 11. (laughs) You know, it's like, oh, just go straight to 10. But, you know, it follows in a long tradition. Uh, BlackBerry did something similar a while back when they went from BlackBerry 7 to BlackBerry 10. Um, obviously, OS 10 has been around for rather longer than both of those two. Um, but, you know, they, they wanted to signal that this was a big release. And I think to understand that you really have to go back and look at the history a little bit. And the history here is Windows 8, like a number of versions of Windows before it, including ME and Vista, uh, was one of the kind of odd-numbered ones, if you like, the kind of the botched ones that didn't go so well. Um, and, and to a great extent, Windows 10 is about fixing the mistakes they made with Windows 8. And to understand the Windows 8 mistakes, you have to understand the context that that launched into a few years back. And really the context there is that it was becoming increasingly obvious at Microsoft that iOS and Android were dominating the smartphone market that was you know, growing very rapidly at that point, that uh, Microsoft's Windows phone platform really wasn't cutting it. And yet now you also had tablets coming out. You had the iPad, you had Android tablets coming out. And what, what was also becoming very clear was that the model that was being used for tablets was scaled up smartphone operating systems. So not only 
was Microsoft missing out on this mobile opportunity, but tablets, a category they'd arguably invented themselves a few years before, was now going to be uh, dominated by the same two operating systems as smartphones. And so what Microsoft had to do was figure out, okay, we own, we dominate the desktop PC world with Windows. Uh, these guys dominate mobile. How do we get tablets to switch camps, essentially, from smartphones to, to PCs? So we, we, you know, each each of these companies, so Microsoft with Windows dominated the PC side, uh, Android and iOS dominated the smartphone side, tablets were in the middle, and it looked like the iOS and Android were making kind of a land grab for tablets too, and this was Microsoft's attempt to pull tablets back over to the PC side and make it an extension of that side of things. And so they created Windows 8, which was touch-centric, it had these large tiles, the, the, the interface was originally called the Metro interface, there was a lawsuit that meant they had to abandon that terminology at some point, and they now just call it a modern UI, which is really awkward branding. Um, but the point was it's very touch-centric, had these big what are called live tiles where the main interface. It was very touch-centric. New PCs would now be touch-centric even when they had keyboards attached to them. But of course, many people were installing Windows 8 on computers that had no touch capability, which meant that that was a really awkward way to use a mouse and a keyboard when, when things were designed for touch. But basically, they designed Windows 8 as a very uh, touch-oriented operating system with these big touch targets. And what it did was it created this bizarre dichotomy within Windows. You had this touch thing, and then you had the traditional desktop. And the desktop was kind of hidden behind the touch uh, interface um, and hard to find, hard to get to. You had to kind of scroll around and, and get to at least the first time you launched it after you turned on a Windows computer. Um, and a whole variety of other things was duplication of functionality. So the touch version had a mail app and then the desktop version had a mail app. And the same thing, you know, browsers, there was two versions of the Internet Explorer browser and so on. Um, you know, just a lot of strange choices and all of it really stemmed from Microsoft's desire to try to recapture the tablet market and pull that back into the PC side of things. Um, and Windows 10 is really a, a recognition that they made all these mistakes when they did Windows 8, that, the, that putting the touch-centric interface first and essentially getting rid of the start menu that was so familiar to Windows users and didn't exist in Windows 8, um, that burying the desktop, the kind of double versions of applications and so on, all that was a mistake. And so uh, Windows 8.1 fixed some of that a tiny bit, but even that's been incredibly frustrating to use. Um, and Windows 10 really fixes that. It brings back the start menu. It um, puts the touch thing basically out of view unless you really decide that's what you want or, or you're using it on a tablet perhaps where it makes more sense. Um, so it puts the start menu back. It does borrow some of the elements. So it puts those live tiles into the start menu now and things like that. But um, it's really rolling back a lot of the changes they made. It's obviously positioned as a move forward at the same time. So there are some new things like Cortana, which is Microsoft's equivalent of Siri, uh, is now on Windows 10 as well on the desktop. So you can use that in a similar way on your computer. Um, it's got a new browser that's eventually going to replace Internet Explorer, which is called Edge, which is a bit faster, kind of stripped down a bit, has some clever sort of annotation functionality and so on. But, but really the best way to think about Windows 10 is it's, it's kind of getting past the mistakes they made with Windows 8. Yeah, well, that's a huge uh, historical burden to bear, right? I mean... Yeah, um, absolutely. And I wonder, tell us how well do you think Microsoft is dealing with that in Windows 10? Like, what features are they doing that... Or resolving those issues. Also, what uh, what new? Because they're also adding new features. Tell us what's happening in Windows 10 that you think is most noteworthy. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it, as I say, is about rolling some of that stuff back. I think the Cortana thing is really interesting. You know, it's actually a really good voice assistant. It does go further than Siri in some ways. 
um, in that it's not just kind of the voice assistant, but it's all the cloud intelligence and so on behind that. And it follows you across applications. So Cortana's in the browser, for example, too. And we're starting to see some indications that Apple's doing something similar with Siri now, where you can swipe to the right in iOS 9 and you get these sort of suggested applications and things like that. But Microsoft was kind of doing that first and has now built this kind of Cortana engine that sits behind not just their smartphones, but now it's going to be in applications on Android and iOS, and it's a big part of Windows 10. Um, there are some clever multitasking and windowing stuff in there as well. Um, you know, these are kind of the headline features. I mentioned the new Edge browser that's part of that too. The, the big challenge that Microsoft faces is that, you know, unlike Apple um, with iOS and OS 10 and Android from Google, you know, Windows still operates on a multi-year cycle, or at least it has done until now. And so when they make big mistakes, as they did with Windows 8, it takes a very long time to fix them because they make this huge commitment. It takes a long time to roll out. They have to get buy-in from all their enterprise customers and from their developers and so on. And then when they screw up, it really takes them a long time to kind of backtrack and get back on the right track again. With Windows 10 now, another big thing that's going to change is that updates are going to be continual. So there's not going to be kind of an annual big release of Windows 10. Instead, there are going to be new features that are being added constantly during the course of the year. And they call it Windows as a service. It's not paid for as a service, which makes that a bit slightly confusing terminology. But essentially, you're going to get these continuous updates to it as well. And so that's going to be another feature where, you know, instead of having to buy new versions of Windows every few years, you're just going to get this functionality continually updated during the lifetime of your device. So that idea of Windows as a service and these continual updates invokes kind of two other questions right now. One is, you know, the, the Windows 10 is launched this week, but I know a lot of people who don't have it yet, even though they want it. it Microsoft is, seems to be doing something very different on this launch. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, and it's it was frustrating for me. I mean, I, I do mostly use Macs, but I have a Windows computer that I use for certain kinds of work that I need to do, especially when I'm doing client work for Microsoft. Um, and uh, so it was running Windows 8. I bought it this past year, so that was what it was running when I bought it, and I would found it incredibly frustrating. So I was very eager to up, update and upgrade to Windows 10 as soon as it came out. But the process for updating was pretty strange in that you didn't just kind of go online the day that it became available and hit download. You had to go in and quote-unquote reserve your download ahead of time, which just meant basically you put yourself in some vague queue, and then starting at kind of midnight yesterday, um, so Wednesday morning, as it were, in any given country that you might be in, people started being able to upgrade. Um, but there was no indication if you were in the queue of where you were in the queue, when it was going to show up or anything like that. And, you know, in anticipation of doing the podcast today, I wanted to make sure I'd actually used it a little bit. Um, and so I was desperately trying to find out how to speed the process up or how to find out when it was going to update. And finally, somebody posted a tip on, on one of the Windows blogs saying, if you really want to, you can force the upgrade. And so I, I followed those instructions and it wasn't too hard. And, and last night I finally got it to download. So I've been using it this morning as my main laptop just to see how it is. And I like it a lot better. But, you know, most people wouldn't have bothered to do that. They'd be sitting there thinking, OK, I heard this Windows 10 thing was, was coming out. I heard it was this free upgrade that everybody could get. And yet there's no sign of it. Where is it? <laughs> how do I get it? Um, um, and that whole process was really opaque. And I think the reason Microsoft did it is just, you know, I mean, a Mac update, you've got 80 million users or something like that. iOS update, you've got 400 million, and it's a relatively small download. This is a whole new version of Windows used by a billion and a half people in the world. And if everybody hit the servers in the same two hours, you know, the first day it became available, it would be utterly overwhelming. And even Microsoft with its cloud infrastructure probably couldn't have handled that. So I think that's why they kind of staggered it a little bit in this way. But as a user, it was quite frustrating. 
Well, and the upgrade process was free for Windows 7 and Windows 8 users. I, I assume that means that, that Windows 10 can handle all of that older hardware, like all those older computers that can handle those other uh, Windows versions. Yeah, that's certainly uh, the impression that I get. And, and it's partly because it's not adding tons of new clever functionality that requires tons of processing power or anything like that. I mean, at a basic level, it's a very similar operating system. The changes are mostly in the UI. And unlike you know Vista, when that launched, which had all kinds of clever sort of user interface stuff that used transparency and things like that, really might have put pressure on some older processes at that time. There's nothing like that in the new version. This is all very kind of flat and simple from a UI perspective. So it doesn't put too much of a strain on the system and, and pretty much any older system that could handle Windows 7 or Windows 8 well could handle Windows 10 well as well. Well, that's good news for a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it is a free upgrade. And that's the, the, you know, the thing here is that Microsoft really struggled to get people to upgrade to Windows 8. And so with Windows 10 um, and some of the other stuff they're doing with Windows 10, their, their big objective is to try to get as many people on it as possible. And they've actually set a goal of a billion people on Windows 10 by a, might be within a year, I think it is. Wow. Uh, off the top of my head. So, you know, it's about two-thirds of the overall Windows base of devices out there on this new version. And one big reason they want to do that is Windows 10, another one of the features is it's what's what they call a universal operating system. So, you know, again, think of Android. They have Chrome OS and Android at Google. Apple has iOS and OS 10. You know, Microsoft now has Windows, and it runs on everything from PCs to tablets to smartphones to the Xbox to this new HoloLens uh, augmented reality system that they're building um, to you know industrial applications and any number of other things as well. So the idea there is that developers can create an application once and then create some rules around it for how it should behave on different kinds of devices and it can run everywhere. But the benefits of that only really kick in if everybody's actually running Windows 10 on those different devices rather than a whole bunch of different versions of the software. So they have this very strong incentive to get as much of the base as possible onto that where they have a consistent store, the apps can run across all these different devices and so on and so that's why they're really pushing it hard and it's also why they made it a free upgrade so speaking of free and the whole windows as a service idea you know the way microsoft has always made money in the past is by charging quite a bit for windows either through manufacturers selling their computers or or from you know directly from users that are upgrading their windows operating system how, how is microsoft going to make money off of this new approach especially because the upgrade will be free and all the subsequent updates are going to be free yeah, that's a huge question, um, and it's one that I've been worried about for some time. Even before they decided to make this free, it always seemed like the right thing to do given their objectives that we just talked about. Um, but you know, Apple gives away its operating system for free to users now. You know, all upgrades are free um, if you have an existing uh, machine that's running a relatively recent version. You know, Android's always been licensed free and so on. So essentially, those two companies are training everybody that operating systems should be free and all updates to them should be as well. Uh, and Microsoft's kind of the lone holdout here, and yet it's also the largest operating system company in the world um, and so yeah this is going to put a major dent in their operating system revenues they'll still make some money from Windows 10 because they're still going to license it to uh, laptop makers and so on and for people with older versions of Windows so if you're still on XP or one of those other older versions of Windows and you want to upgrade you pay I think $119 or something like that to upgrade to Windows 10 as a paid upgrade so you know they're hoping they'll sell a lot of laptops and PCs and tablets and things that 
um, they'll get a license fee uh, for Windows 10. But yeah, the, the upgrade cycle that normally happens and is usually a big boost from a revenue perspective is just not going to happen this time around for Microsoft. But I think that's also the shape of things to come. I think they're going to find it very hard to going back to charging for upgrades after this, especially because of this new Windows as a service model where you know these incremental upgrades that will come will be free. You know, it seems like there are two potential outcomes with that. I, I know over the years when new versions of Windows came out, it prompted... Uh, hardware upgrades for for computer owners, right? The idea is that their old computer didn't run Windows very well. Well, the old computer couldn't run the new version of Windows. The new version had compelling features, so they'd upgrade their computer at the same time. Um, But PC sales have been flattening for a long time now. And and this seems like a very different approach because the idea would be if I've got a a PC running Windows, it's as up-to-date as the next computer I'm going to buy. In that sense, there's a lot of continuity, and, and in fact, that's a very friendly transition, right? Because the computer I'm getting rid of is essentially going to be the same as the computer I'm replacing when it comes to software and everything I see. I don't have to go through a messy upgrade cycle. I just essentially transfer my data over, and everything's working as it was before. I wonder if Microsoft seems that I wonder if Microsoft thinks that this is somehow going to loosen up PC sales a little bit because it's less of a major hurdle. Uh, than it used to be with when someone had to upgrade their entire operating system every time they bought a new computer. Yeah, I mean, that's the other side of it, right? So we talked about the, the, the financial impact on Microsoft, but the other impact is on the, the OEMs, the companies that actually make Windows PCs and laptops and so on, and they've always benefited, as you said, from past upgrade cycles. It's not clear that they will this time around. You don't need to buy a new PC to run Windows 10 necessarily. Um, and so the onus is really on those OEMs to, to create compelling hardware that then drives the upgrade now. So it's not that you're upgrading to get a new version of Windows because you probably already have it, uh, but maybe you upgrade to new hardware that can take advantage of some of those features or that adds functionality or performance that you don't have in your current PC or laptop. Um, and in that sense, you know, it becomes much more like a Mac sale where you know, it's all about the new hardware and the fact that it's going to perform better and so on rather than about the operating system, which you, know, you have the same latest version on whatever hardware you're running already in all likelihood. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see what effect that has on, on uh, this downturn that PC sales have seen lately. Um, so is there anything else you want to add? Any other thoughts you have about Windows 10 that we should be paying attention to, especially as it relates to sort of the way Apple has done things? Yeah, I think one interesting thing is, you know, Apple's made um, a lot out of the fact that it's always, you know, the fastest upgrade uh, cycle, you know, new Mac OS comes out and they instantly have, you know, large proportion of the total Mac base on the new operating system. And they've always talked a lot about that. And they always kind of poke fun at Windows and especially over the last couple of years, because so many users have just stuck with Windows 7 because they found Windows 8 totally uncompelling. Um, the challenge now will be you will see a huge upgrade cycle to Windows 10. And so that whole line of argument, I think, will go out of the window. Um, you know, Windows 10 will have a pretty rapid upgrade cycle, I suspect, but certainly will totally dwarf uh, Mac uh, user base uh, very quickly as well. And so there's that sort of competitive argument there. I think, you know, it also means that Microsoft can keep up with Mac OS much more effectively than it has done in the past because it's on this incremental upgrade cycle now instead of a multi-year major upgrade cycle um, such that, you know, the TikTok that we see across mobile operating systems between Android and iOS and Windows Phone uh, will now be much more 
present in the PC world as well, where you know you'll see Apple add a feature here, you'll see Windows add the feature there, and then Apple will copy a feature that is in the new version of Windows, and so on. And so you'll see that happen more quickly. So it'll be harder for Apple to make a big leap forward, I think, as well, um, because they're both going to be operating on a much more incremental rather than you know big jump sort of basis. So that last comment actually made me think of just one more question before we move on from this topic. Um, you know, I, one thing that I've noticed about Windows over the years is that developers can be have been able to be relatively complacent, um, and that includes in-house developers for, say, corporations that need custom software. The idea being that, you know, there's a version of Windows 7, or going back even further, a version of Windows XP that is just going to run forever, and your software will always work on it, you know, because Microsoft never really did a ton of stuff under the hood between major versions. You could write something once and count on it to work as long as they were using that flavor of the OS, whether it's XP or, or Vista or 7. Um, it seems like that this puts developers much more on notice, right? Because it, there are potentially much larger changes going on in Windows over time. Uh, more significant updates that have the potential to break software. How do, how do you think developers are going to react to this sort of new burden of always having to stay up to date where before they could be a little lazy trusting that a lot of people would continue using Windows 7 or XP? Yeah, I, I think, you know, there are two sides to that. I mean, on the one hand, you know, you've got this new version and, and right now, you know, there's some applications that haven't been updated even to work with Windows 8 yet. Uh, and they look pretty out of place, much as some of the older applications look out of place on, you know, iOS or OS 10, where they haven't adopted the new kind of user interface conventions and look and feel and so on. Um, but yeah, there is this longer term issue. And I think, you know, the kernel is going to be common. There's, there's not going to be any huge change in the fundamental way that these things work. So hopefully it shouldn't be too much of an issue there. But somebody who never bothered upgrading an application for Windows 8 is now going to struggle to not look out of place uh, at the very least on Windows 10 and certainly won't be taking advantage of a lot of the new features on Windows 10. So that is going to push developers to move a little faster to perhaps try to catch up. And I think the whole universal application thing, so you know, you create an application for Windows 10 it will run anywhere that runs Windows, I think that's kind of the, the carrot to try to get developers to move along and get their stuff supporting Windows 10. But I think Microsoft will also be very careful to make sure it doesn't make any big under the hood changes so that it doesn't break the functionality of apps that have been updated relatively recently. Yeah. Well, it's going to be fascinating to watch, especially if this leads to, you know, potentially the largest single OS upgrade in the history of the world. <laughs> so. Yeah, absolutely. And it will. You know, I mean, Android's, you know, certainly rivaling, you know, Windows in terms of total number of users. But of course, we all know that Android base is extremely fragmented across many different versions. Right. And so this could well be the largest single version of an operating system out there by far uh, within the next few months. That'll be interesting to watch. Yeah, it's no small, no small feat. No, indeed. Um, so our last topic, just to cover quickly, was you know just as we were getting ready to record today, um, BuzzFeed reported, and it was John Patchkowski who used to be at Recode and has been at BuzzFeed for the last few months. Uh, he reported that uh, Apple's planning to announce a new Apple TV uh, with an SDK and App Store and everything that goes with it, by implication potentially also a TV service, although the article didn't mention that, um, at September's iPhone event that we all assume will happen on the usual schedule. Um, you know, he also had a report earlier in the year suggesting that all that was coming uh, at WWDC and then shortly before um, there were various reports that kind of shelved that idea, that, or that Apple had shelved uh, that idea. But uh, Aaron, what was your take on, on that news from today? Well, I, I'll be honest, I think this is the inevitable Apple TV, the one that he described in, in his article today. 
you know, an Apple TV that has an SDK that supports apps that has a touch-based remote. I, I think Apple's presence in the living room, you know, has always been a hobby up to this point. I think this is where Apple finally takes it out of the hobby stage. Um, I was interested that he said that the TV service is going to be separated from the Apple TV launch. I, I can see sense making on both sides of that. Um, I think an app store is enough of a compelling reason for Apple to release this. Uh, I think console makers, I think Sony with their PlayStation, Microsoft with the Xbox, and and Nintendo uh, with the Wii U, I think they should all be nervous if Apple does that. Um, only because if you look at what Apple did to handheld gaming um, with the iPhone, I think a relatively inexpensive, wide-open development platform uh, on televisions uh, would be hugely disruptive. Right now it's really hard and expensive to develop for any of the major consoles and uh, I think Apple could could really completely change the living room gaming market if they had an Apple TV with an App Store. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I've always thought that, that that would make things really interesting. I mean, the problem with the casual gaming market is it's tied to these small devices, essentially, and, and those have been extremely popular and sucked a lot of the wind out of the rest of the gaming market. It didn't really address the living room very effectively unless you're willing to use AirPlay to project your small device onto the big screen. So this now moves Apple into direct competition with those you know, hardcore gaming devices in the living room uh, in a way that it never has been before. Um, but I also think it creates a lot of interesting opportunities for innovation around the TV space too. I mean, I look at Roku and the range of channels that are available there just because they have an open SDK. You know, I could create an app today and put it up on the Roku store. Um, you know, I look at some of the, the range of the content that's there, but also the way some of those apps have introduced some interactivity and so on. And that, that's really interesting to me too, because the Apple TV side uh, of, uh, sorry, the TV side of the Apple TV box to date has been very locked down. It's lots of big brand names and so on, but none of the niche sort of content that uh, might appeal to the long tail. And so I think that's really interesting too, and that you could get a whole range of new content services growing up about that as, as well. Um, you know, what the prospects are for those content services Apple launches its own TV service is another question. But, um, you know, I think that's that's also interesting, though I think the gaming side of it is probably more significant. Yeah, it, it, I will say this, though. As, as much as um, I've been uh, optimistic about this being the sort of inevitable Apple TV with an app store, and, and I think a TV service totally makes sense from Apple, um, I, I will say that... Uh, I, I, I'm expressing doubt mostly on the timing and the sources on this, um, only only because it's really just the New York Times and John Puschkowski who seemed to be promoting this new Apple TV, and then they had to walk it back because Apple didn't show up at WWDC with it. I have no idea how they could have fit an Apple TV into that keynote presentation back in June. And so, so the timing issue is the one that I'm doubtful of. I, I could totally see it happening in September, but I'll look for some other sources corroborating before I put any more stock into it. Right, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, the other question around timing, of course, is if it is going to come with an SDK, you know, Apple has a long history of releasing SDKs months before the actual device becomes available. Um, And so the other question is, you know, if they announce it in September, when does it actually go on sale? And obviously they'd like to have it on sale by Christmas, presumably, but, you know, does that mean they give developers one month head start um, and then just let the apps trickle in later? Does it mean they, you know, wait till, say, November to actually release the hardware so that developers have a bit more time? And that's another interesting question. Yeah. I don't know that we can know the answer to it yet. And that's part of what makes me the most 
doubtful about the September time frame. I, I mean, it makes sense for Apple to announce it September so they can sell it in time for Christmas. But if, if they're not announcing the TV service at the same time, then the only compelling part of this new Apple TV is the App Store. <clears throat> but if you're not giving developers time to put apps into the App Store, then the whole reason for it sort of goes away. And, and, and that's why, I, I don't know, I mean, you might see a sort of thing where Apple says, hey, this is coming next year, but we're talking about it now so developers can get started. They've certainly done that before. They did it with the iPhone. They did it with the iPod. They did it with the watch. Or sorry, with the iPad. They did it with the watch. I could see them doing something like that with the Apple platform. Of course, that completely stops sales of any existing Apple TVs. But uh, I don't think that's a huge sacrifice on Apple's part. Yeah, no, it's hardly a big business right. today anyway. So, yeah, not the end of the world. Okay, great. Well, that's, that wraps up conversation on that particular topic. Um, all that remains now is to do our weekly pick. And as a reminder for our listeners, this is a feature that we do at the end of every episode where one of us uh, chooses something that we've liked recently. And it could be a book, could be a song or an album, could be a movie that we've seen, could be something completely different. A couple of weeks ago, Aaron recommended a, a fitness accessory. Um, but this week, it's Aaron's turn. So I'll turn it over to you, Aaron. Well, we haven't done a TV show yet, so I'm going to do a TV show this time. And I really like watching cooking shows. Um, I like cooking at home. Um, I, I'm, I'm certainly not an exceptional chef, but I think it's fun. Uh, one of my favorite sort of cooking you know, media properties over the years has been the America's Test Kitchen slash Cooks Illustrated Empire. I think they do great stuff. I love the way they you know test out the recipes and talk through. That has a very sort of methodical approach to cooking. Uh, there's a new, well, I say new. It's it's actually been around for a couple of seasons now. But there's a it's a new to me cooking show that uh, takes a much more artistic approach to cooking than sort of the methodical scientific approach that America's Test Kitchen takes. And and it's a show called The Mind of a Chef. It's on, it runs on PBS. Uh, you can watch current episodes live on PBS, or you can catch up on old seasons, um, or you can catch up on old seasons on Netflix. In fact, season three just hit Netflix. Um, it, the Mind of a Chef is a totally different approach to a cooking show than any other show I've seen. And essentially the way it works is they kind of highlight one to two chefs during a season and they really get to know that chef on a personal basis. They sort of, and these are famous chefs, very, you know, successful professional chefs, but they get to know them as people. They sort of learn about their history and background. And then as each episode progresses, they're all, you know, 25 minute episodes. As each episode progresses, the chefs will also prepare uh, various menu items that they've, des that they've de designed or developed over the years. And it might be like a favorite secret thing that they make for themselves at home, or it might be one of the menu items they feature at their restaurants. They might actually feature a friend, uh, another chef who cooks something for them. Uh, it's a cool show because you get to know these chefs on a personal basis, and they all have interesting personalities. It's also a great show artistically. Um, they have animated transitions and segments, um, great music throughout. There's, there's a lot of production value. And in fact, Anthony Bourdain, uh, who's, who's a, a now famous TV chef, uh, actually narrates the episodes too. So there's a lot of production value, a lot of interesting stuff. Um, they're cooking stuff I never would have thought to try, um, but they make it accessible at the same time. So uh, it's just a, it's, it's a great show. If you enjoy cooking shows, I recommend it. Uh, if you enjoy um, uh, if you enjoy artistic things, I'd recommend it. Uh, each episode is, is really pretty beautiful.
Great. Thanks, Aaron. And Aaron's selling himself short by saying he's not a good chef. He is a very good chef. I can attest to that, having had some of his desserts especially. Uh, well, thank you, everybody, for joining us. As always, we're grateful that you were with us. Uh, we'll post links to various things that we've talked about today on uh, the website, including links to The Mind of a Chef that Aaron's just been talking about, as well as Aaron's piece from the Beyond Devices blog from a couple of weeks ago talking about Apple Music uh, and links to some of the other pieces that we've referenced. So uh, thanks again for joining us, and we look forward to being with you again next week.